Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris of Facts and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish, ACE. I'm a working film, TV, and documentary editor. Over the last nine years, I've done more than 400 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for almost 30 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, we're talking with Kevin Tent, ACE, about his longtime collaboration with director Alexander Payne and their latest film, The Holdovers. Kevin's been on Art of the Cut before for his last Alexander Payne collaboration, Downsizing, and for The Peanut Butter Falcon. Kevin has been nominated for numerous Ace Eddies for his work on Election, About Schmidt, Sideways, and Nebraska. He also won an Ace Eddie and was nominated for an Oscar for his work on The Descendants. Before I hop into our discussion with Kevin, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing base from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no-limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for almost 30 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris FX suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to borisfx.com slash blog slash AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Kevin Tent, ACE, discusses editing Alexander Payne's The Holdovers. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed The Holdovers. What a great movie. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. It's been really great how well it's being received from people. I've been getting a lot of emails and texts and stuff from friends and fellow editors and stuff. It's great. You can't ask for anything better. I went to uh, Thanksgiving Eve, a very full show. That's great. And applause at the end, which for a movie, you know, sometimes you like a Marvel movie or something, the fans yeah. go crazy. But right. for for a movie like this, I thought applause was a wonderful touch at the end yeah, of the movie. Yeah, that's great news. That's great news. Yeah, so let's figure out how you did that. <laughs> you and Alexander Payne and, well, uh, and, uh, and, and the actors and everybody else, of course, right? Yeah, it was certainly a combined effort of all these amazing, talented people, including David Hemmingson, the writer, and of course, Alexander. I think he did a terrific job keeping the balance of humor and drama. I guess you could say we, I was part of that too. I think we really started out with a great script and we had great actors, you know. Uh, Paul Giamatti is just phenomenal and he was just so damn good. He had some real tongue twisters to deliver and fast and stuff like that when he's when he's teaching the kids and stuff. But man, he rarely dropped a line or I had to go back, like maybe once or twice in the whole movie where he had to go back and go, oh, I stumbled, let me go back and get that. And that's really something else. He was so... 
locked into that character, which is really, really something else. I love it. I'm a big fan of Billions, and he's such a different character in that movie. I know. He's always good. Let's just face it. Well, you mentioned the um, the tonal shifts, the difference between the comedy and some of the you know weightier moments. Talk to me about how that is dealt with in editing. You know, I mean, a lot of it was the script, but we did do a lot of things where we combined beats so that it wasn't too much of a roller coaster ride. We hopefully were easing into a section of humor and then, you know, coming out of that and then coming into maybe a, a few more dramatic sequences. I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular, the montage where Angus is running around at night in the school alone where he's drinking the wine and stuff like that. We played with that sequence. It was actually, those were broken up in some spots, uh, but we made it seem like he had stayed up an entire night by adding a little beat with him in the, in the church when Mary comes in and he's looking at the photo of her son. That was elsewhere. And there were other things. I think the, the night montage was the same, but that was elsewhere. We made that a part of the montage. The montage was kind of fun, but it was also a little lonely, kind of felt for the kid. And then it really had some poignancy when we ended on him in the church and seeing Mary. And it was great for their bonding moment too. So that's just one example. But, you know, there were a couple, maybe a few others in there that we kind of rearranged things and dropped some things. We've done this before too. If a scene is dramatic and it doesn't really need to be undercut by any humor, we we would, you know, we'd probably drop a couple lines here and there if there were things that didn't seem necessary. You're thinking about a, a scene that you want the audience to feel some gravitas to. And if there's a funny line... Right. That breaks it up. And right. it undercuts yeah, as it. funny as it is, it's got to go. Yeah. So we had a few moments of that. So, you know, that's kind of what we did. And then, you know, we dropped a few scenes and dropped a lot of internal tightening for scenes and stuff like that. It's following that kind of idea of making it focused on one emotional beat, if you will. Talk to me a little bit about the world building that starts the movie off. There's a really nice montage at the very top. You're just getting the sense of where the characters live and who they are. That kind of just evolved, and that was kind of fun. So when Alexander first started shooting, he was just going to use the voices from those boys. He just had the idea of using the voices. And then when he saw the teacher in front of them and the instructor and stuff, he said, oh, let's just shoot this real quick. And they only did a couple takes of it. And when I got it, I was like, oh, this is cool, but wait, is this supposed to be a title sequence? Because I said, it's not long enough. And I was like trying to figure out, this is before he came to the cutting room. I was like, well, what are we supposed to do? I was like looking for other choir music, like is it supposed to go into the, I didn't understand what it was. And he he actually didn't really, it wasn't really clear to him what he was going to do with it. My initial instinct was like, oh no, we need more choir. But I kind of love the way it just kind of changes, a lot of music changes in the title sequence. So we just ran the titles over this whole long section of meeting the characters and seeing the world and then really hopefully the audience feels the movie really starts when you meet Paul and the uh, principal of the school in their office. That kind of just evolved. And I, I was pretty happy with how that actually came out in the end. It was a little unusual. I mean, it happens all the time, but I had no idea what it was going to be before we started cutting it. But I was really happy how it came out. That's so interesting. It, it reminds me of this quote that I wanted to read to you anyhow. I'm going to have to do it uh, off the top of my head. But Ron Howard says that it often happens where you come to a solution in editing where the solution to a problem is better than if you'd planned it that way. I think that that's a good example because in it, and, and we loved it. And we, you know, we got some great music choices. The second song that comes in there, who is just a young artist out here today, but it sounds very much like a 
60s or 70s song. That was a great find. Our music editor, uh, Richard Ford, found that for us, which was a true find. And then we just really mixed up the music. The music was really telling you so much about each character and at each beat in Paul's apartment. For instance, there, you know, he's listening to old opera. And then there's a rock cue that the kids, the Chamber Brothers cue that the kids are listening to. So we just switched it all up there. And then we reuse that cue, that sort of melancholy cue. We reuse that cue to kind of wrap up the montage title sequence. In answer to your other question, there were, there are other moments where, you know, we had scenes where they were driving to Boston and, you know, there was dialogue in those sequences and it was scripted dialogue. And, you know, we were like, I think at that point we were like, okay, they've, People have heard enough of these people blah, blah, blahing all the time. Let's take out the dialogue and just use it as a silent montage or some music. It was so much more effective than what, what we had planned on the beginning. One of the things that I noticed, and, and I've noticed in previous films of uh, Alexander's, is the use of dissolves. I think they get a bad rap sometimes. <laughs> Tell me about making that choice. When you're cutting in the Avid, it starts out as a cut, and you are making a conscious choice. A dissolve works better than this cut right here. Well, you know what? We've always used them, and I've always loved them. We've used them in for pretty much, I think, every movie. We've had like little dissolve sequences, or at least dissolves. I was thinking about this the other day in Citizen Ruth. We cut that on film, and you know, in those days, you you had to market. Uh, Steve, you probably remember this. You had to market with China Marker, and then it was such a gift when you saw it in the lab for the first time, if it was an AB dissolve, and they were sometimes so smooth and so beautiful. So I think early on, we were, we really loved dissolves. Yeah, we had a couple of dissolve sequences in Citizen Ruth. And, um, and here we just went for it too. We did some really long ones. And at first I thought, oh, we haven't, we've never done that before. But then I happened to see a scene from Nebraska not long ago. And we did do some similar long dissolves with, action happening in the tail of them and stuff like that. So they're beautiful and they're effective. They seem to sometimes just add a lot of emotion to something. And they also can give you a time transition. They kind of make it dreamy, yeah, which I think is kind of nice. Yeah, it's so, yeah. part of the vocabulary, right? Yeah, yeah. All tools are uh, at your disposal when you're making a film. Correct me if I'm wrong. There are at least two wipes in this movie. Alexander loves to have at least one. <laughs> he loves Kurosawa films, so he's always like, oh, let's, we always have to do at least a wipe. So, yeah, yep. I remember being near the end of the movie. I mean, close, like the last third or the last quarter is where I remember it landing, but. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could have been anything. Like maybe in Boston someplace? Oh, I think it is in Boston. I think we wiped to the building, the hotel room or something like that. The other thing that I was wondering about from your perspective, it probably doesn't make too much of a difference for you but it really felt like film and it was shot yeah. digitally correct correct yeah 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 but i mean between the opening credits and some of the logos and yeah. there was there was weave maybe there was all kinds yeah. of stuff like you can do everything anything on on with these digital tools these days it's pretty amazing but, but you're not seeing any of that in your cut no yeah no we did we did that all at the very end I should give credit to our title designer and our, our the guy that does all the graphics for Alexander's movies, uh, Nate Carlson. He's in Omaha, Nebraska. He's so talented, and he absolutely made the Focus logo. He made a bunch of them for us, and Focus was great about it. They were like, "Yeah, sure, let's do it," you know, <laughs> which was that doesn't always happen. In fact, it usually doesn't. Right. Um, usually, have to jump through hoops to get something like that. But they were great about it. And Miramax was the same way. Miramax was like, "Okay, yeah, sure, seems good." 
I think it was Alexander who had the, you know, to put the R rating on it, which was also kind of funny. So <laughs> a lot of people get a kick out of that, which is great. But yeah, so no, while we were cutting, we didn't have that, but it was always the plan to, to kind of add some of that stuff. One of my first jobs in Los Angeles, actually my first job, I was still in film school, was working at a film lab. I would watch prints, and if that print came through, I would probably have rejected it and bounced it back because it had so much negative and positive dirt on it. So <laughs> that would have been, I told Alexander that. I was like, man, I'd reject this print. But it, it didn't get rejected. <laughs> no, no, no. Some people catch it, but man, some of the pieces of dirt just crack me up when they go by. I'm like, oh, that's funny. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what I call cinema time, that you have the mm. choice to jump forward in time if you want to. You have the right, choice right. to slow time, and you have the choice to do, like, um, shoe leather. You know, that's a derogatory term, but there are times when you allow people to walk from one place to another or you see them drive from one place to another. What's the, what are the purposes of those moments? Alexander's kind of big on that and strong on that. There's always a sort of a battle between us when we're trying, I'm always pushing to tr tighten up some of those moments, but respectfully, I understand what he's going for. I think he wants the audience to be able to absorb things. If you're referring to like Paul, like walking down the hallway, maybe the further he gets, the lonelier it seems, you know, there's, there's emotion in those kind of moments. There's lots of beats like that in the holdovers because these are kind of hurt people, damaged souls. There's a lot of pathos with them. So I think some of those shots and some of those beats are hopefully portraying that a little bit. Well, I always figure they have a purpose. So I just wanted to talk to you about what the purpose was. So you mentioned the great actors that you had. Talk to me a little bit about your process for um, finding and culling and saving those great moments. Um, what are you doing? Are you creating selects reels or are you putting locators? Do you write hand notes? What do you do? I don't do hand notes anymore, but I do do locators and I do a cut still uh, like while they're shooting. So I'm up to camera or, you know, a day or two behind something, something like that. But then when he comes to the cutting room, he has not watched dailies at all when he's on set. And usually I'll send them whatever scenes I'm done with by Friday, given for the weekend if he wants to watch it, but he often doesn't want to watch anything. So I think he's busy prepping and doing other things and stuff like that. So when he comes back to the cutting room, we start watching dailies together again. We cut Citizen Ruth on film and we used to line up our takes then. We'd line up sections where we would you know, take something as far as we could and line it up. And we still do that kind of today. And then we also stack takes. We'll have a couple of hero takes, maybe two, three, sometimes four, that we'll just stack in the avid and mute the top ones or you know, mute the bottom ones and mute the top one as a hero. And then as the cut progresses, we go back and check those periodically to make sure we still have the best performances that we like. And then, you know, switch down if we want. Sometimes we switch them out, live with it for a couple cuts and switch it back or, or not. But me personally, I line up everything in my timeline while I'm doing my first cut. If I even hear a door close or a phone ring that, or even a footstep that's, I'm like, oh, that footstep's pretty good. You know, I'll just throw it in the, this giant, massive mess of a timeline. And then I start cutting with that. So I'll take my best favorite takes or I'll take looks, you know, any, any kind of thing. So when I have my first timeline, it's, it's really kind of ugly. And then I go back and kind of save things, but I still save things. Like if I hear a perfect door close and the other takes don't have it, then I have it in my timeline so I can grab it really quickly and drop it in. You mentioned that uh, Alexander comes in and you watch dailies again. Do you watch 
the scene so you have some kind of context for watching the dailies or do you go straight to the dailies? Uh, we go straight to the dailies. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. So we go straight to the dailies. So what we wind up having is sort of a hybrid editor's assembly director's cut. It's better than an editor's first cut, I would say. And it's not quite a really good director's cut, but it's the first thing we have. So let's say we do a scene, then we'll go back and watch what I had done in the, in the, my first cut of it. And he'll, you know, he'll say, oh, yeah, that, that is good the way we did that. You did that. So let's incorporate that into what we're doing. But basically, we really just cut together uh, in the very beginning. So it's kind of, yeah, like I said, it's kind of like a director's slash editor's cut. Earlier in our interview, you mentioned music and that you have a music editor. Tell me a little bit about that process. If you aren't putting the music in when you first cut the scenes, how does music then change them? Great question. It was interesting on the holdovers because besides source cues, which I, you know, I have a mental library of 70s music in my head that I thought, oh, we could use any of these cues. They'd all be great. But I was having trouble hearing what the score might be or what the, the music might be. Mindy Elliott, our longtime assistant editor who now who got an associate editor credit on the movie and deservedly so. She gave me a Swingle Singers cue, which is the choir, the Christmas music thing. And she kicked off using that kind of music. And then we added it in. I added it, I think, in one or two scenes or maybe just one scene even. And then our music editor came on and we started using that. It became a thematic type of music that we used a lot of. So the acapella versions. We used the Von Trapp family for the little drummer boy and stuff like that. And it wound up being really terrific because it was counterpunctual and ironic and added humor and all being kind of buoyant and Christmassy. So credit goes to Mindy on that. And then Richard Ford, our music editor, really kind of gave us lots of other options for it. And then we kept swapping things in. And then the score came in. That was the other thing. I, I couldn't really hear the score. Sometimes I can just, you know... Like I think every editor can go, oh, I know what will work there, you know, and go to their mental library and pull out a, a cue that will work. I was having trouble doing that with this one. But Mark Orton, who's amazing, he worked with us on Nebraska. Once Alexander decided that he was the right person for it, our music editor, Richard, again, gave us a lot of temp tracks from some of Mark's work. And Alexander was feeling comfortable that was the direction to go. And then we hired Mark and then he went to work on the score and the source cues and then you know like all the 70s music that's just fun to do and it's time consuming because you fall in love with it and then they tell you it's a hundred thousand dollars we had to make a lot of choices and tough calls when we were finalizing things how does the score that you put in temporarily how does that inform alexander and you talking to the composer or doesn't it so richard he does more than just music editing he kind of like is like the, uh, our music czar, if you will, in the cutting room. He believed Mark was the right person. So he gave us a lot of cues from Mark's earlier work and stuff like that and worked with Mark. I think maybe even did a couple of demos of some cues that we started using, you know, putting, dropping in the cut and seeing, getting used to it and stuff like that. Alexander likes to work, when it comes to working with the composer, he likes to step away. So when he's feeling really good about the cut itself, then he kind of focuses on music and he'll go off with Mark and work on cues. And he doesn't like to have a lot of voices, I think, in his head, people telling him, oh, no, that's good or bad or whatever. So until he feels comfortable with that, then it'll come back to the cutting room and he'll go, what do you think of this? 
Uh, we got some great cues for here. Here's some options, you know, and we'll, we'll kind of go through the music and discuss it. But he likes to do that kind of all on his own. And what was the discussion like to even decide what was going to be a, a needle drop or a source cue and what was going to be score? We really have three kinds of music in the holdovers. We have the Christmas music, which are was was needle drops, but they were a lot of them were acapella versions of Christmas songs and things like that. That was one bit of the music. Then we had to kind of have the the period piece music, I would say, like the 60s rock cues, and we have a bunch of those in there too. And then there's Mark's score. So there's like three different pieces. And the first ones we kind of settled in was the Christmas music. Those were really helping the scenes. They were kind of really important in the scenes. I never really got too worried about the rock cues because, I mean, it's just you're going to get one that's going to be great. Drop it in at some point. I was never worried about that. We had a couple of rock cues that Mark did versions of or he did his own version of rock kind of themes because we couldn't afford the the source cues so mark helped us out on some of those it's really a shame that it gets so expensive and certain ones you're like that song is is a hundred thousand dollars and we talked about the title sequence earlier our title sequence there's actually a big break in there where the chamber brothers time has come today is playing and if you put titles on that while it was playing it jacked up the price to another thirty thousand dollars or something like that so I wasn't really happy about it because it feels like there should be a title in that sequence somewhere where we're seeing Mary and the boys talking and where you meet uh, Angus and the other boys and stuff. We used to have them in there, but we had to get take them out because it was too expensive. So there's titles, titles, and then no titles for a while, and then titles again. (laughs) Just to be able to drop 30 grand. Uh, Lots of people have the question of, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? You know, is this a Christmas movie? <laughs> I think Die Hard's a Christmas movie. So I guess this one is too. <laughs> I think totally I think Die Hard's a Christmas movie. You know, it's got a Christmas ending. It's got, you know, it's got a happy ending. It's got a Santa hat. Yeah, it's got it's all got Christmas trees in it. It's got Christmas music. But that's a good question. Since you've worked with Alexander for so long, what were some of the discussions you had before you started cutting? Usually he'll send me the script when he's even thinking about something, he'll send me a script. And he sent me about 35 or 40 pages of this early on. And I thought, this is good. This is in his wheelhouse. It seems it seems like it could be a you know a good script. I think the script only went up to where the rest of the boys take off. But when he really hones in on something, then I usually give notes on the script, my thoughts, my personal thoughts about pacing and you know, whether this scene's repetitive or these beats seem repetitive and stuff like that. Sometimes he takes those notes, sometimes he doesn't. He's always appreciative of them on this one and, and on earlier films when he's wrestling with the casting, I'll watch casting tapes. And that was the case on this one and just give my two cents. I mean, I'm not the only one he's bouncing this off of, you know, it's a couple other people, but we talk not in super detail. He'll tell me what he's thinking, you know, like in the, for instance, in the holdovers, he wanted it to be like a seventies movie. And what he said is that he, he hopes that people feel like, you know, they open some vault somewhere and pull the 70s movie out as opposed to it being a movie made now of the 70s. So he'll tell me those things. And then I looked at camera tests and stuff like that. So he'll keep me looped in on that thing. But I'm in the loop. How does it change for you when you're working with somebody you haven't worked with as long as Alexander? What kind of advice do you feel comfortable giving or how do you socially engineer that discussion? All editors are good at navigating the relationships with directors. And I haven't lost that because I do work with lots of different people when he's not making a movie. So 
I think like we all are respectful of what the what directors want to try to do and try to help them get what they're looking for. And, and if they don't know, help find it with them. And there's always those first few weeks when you're working together and you can feel they don't completely trust you 100%. There's usually a moment where all of a sudden they go, this person's with me. It's like this little barrier, this little wall you have to cross over. But once you're on that side, the trust is there. And then I think you just have to be yourself and speak your mind as well as you can. All the people that work with one director a lot, when you work with somebody else, it, it, you can't work with that person the same way you work. Right. Yeah, it's a different relationship. Every every relationship's different. Every film's different. You know, you could work with a director a couple of times and you have a film that's super stressful, that's maybe not working. And, you know, that could be the end of a relationship. Who knows? But, you know, editors are good at just, they're good people people, I think. And that's one of the job requirements, I would say. Empathy. Empathy. Sympathy. Patience. Patience is a huge one. A huge one. You're so right. Let's talk about patience. When you're cutting something and you feel like maybe it's not quite working the way you want, how much as an experienced editor are you saying, I'm not worried about it, I'll get there? And how much are you chomping at the bit to fix whatever's wrong? I'm a big believer in stepping away from something. If You can, you can only beat your head against the wall for so many times and then you, you really need to just go wait a minute let me come back tomorrow on this or let me come back in a week i'll come look at this again and usually i find it's not as bad as i thought it was and it's not as good as i thought it was but just having that distance is really good i think for all editors to like just go wait a minute let me just step away and i find that really helpful can you think of an example you gave of getting over a wall with somebody? Sometimes I've heard editors say, oh, once he realized that all my notes were lining up with his notes, <laughs> no, uh, the locators like, yeah, that's the right take. That's, you know, when, once you realize that, oh, every single take he picked is the take I picked, that a lot of times that's one of the tells. That can be the tell or if you come up with something that they hadn't thought of. And they're like, oh, that just fixed this thing I was so worried about, you know, and then they then they're like, oh, OK, you just saved my fanny on that little moment. That's always a big one, too. I found that to be where you just thought of something that they hadn't thought of. And that's normal. I mean, that's what our job is to do. Um, Paul Giamatti was the one of the main characters in this movie. Was this a movie where he gave a lot of different temperatures or colors of his performance and you had to kind of shape that over the course of the movie or was it kind of locked in he gave very subtle differences and they were all good his takes were all good i i said i think i mentioned that earlier he was just phenomenal like he was always really good and it was really subtle the differences we chose there was never a problem with things not being consistent from take to take i think because he was all they were all very close. They were close enough together that we could just be very comfortable jumping in between the little ones. If we had one line that was really good from one other take, then we, you know, there's no no big differences. And he's very good at his at his body positions and being consistent. And he's such a pro. It's just I I can't say enough wonderful things about him. As from an editor, you know, he just made your job a hell of a lot easier. I was thinking about one scene that I loved with some reaction shots where they're in a bowling alley and he goes and has a drink and is 
like trying to explain Greek philosophy to a couple of guys at the bar. Such a funny scene. I know. I know. He he nailed that. I think there's maybe maybe four or five takes of that. And yeah, we that one we cut around. That one we cut up. Those are that yeah, he did an amazing job there. But yeah, yeah, that's a that's a funny scene. Those guys are great too. That scene, and I'm trying to picture it in my head, reminds me of shot size and shot selection. And and Alexander might have taken care of this, although I don't know what else the coverage was. But you would never go in for a big close-up on a scene like that. No, it wasn't. And we had the two-shot, which we definitely wanted to have the deadpan stare from them from the two-shot. So that kind of dictated the coverage on Paul's side. You wouldn't want to be close on him and then cut with that two-shot necessarily. So I don't remember if we had a close-up of Paul there. I don't think so. I think they were all from that wider medium shot. The, another scene that I was thinking of the coverage and kind of choosing when to be on people is when they're watching... Um, the newlywed game. The newlywed game. There's two times they watch it. So the first time, Paul doesn't know what it is. The second time you come back, which was really great. He only did it in one take. But he's laughing and enjoying it. And I thought that was so funny that now he's hooked. Now he thinks it's the greatest thing ever. So it's very subtle, but we used it. I was thinking about that scene earlier when I was talking about how good he was because the coverage where he talks about that he almost got married once and all that stuff, beautiful performances and like all four takes on his coverage though. Like they were all terrific. But he did subtle things in all of them that were just, you know, like, oh, that that little laugh he does is so great. So... And she's terrific in that scene, too. Yeah, it felt just where you were on wides and mediums and closes and that kind of thing just felt very natural to me in that scene. Ah, good. I mean, how do you des- determine? I, one, some, one person said, which I thought was really smart, which was it's the view they have of each other. They're not standing two inches from each other. They're sitting six feet apart, and therefore yeah. that dictates the shot size to some extent. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to think about it. And I will say this, that we are really performance driven on almost everything we do. So if there's if there's a great take in that scene in particular, I know that we went in, for, we cut lines out in that scene too, but I know we went specifically to Paul at certain points. We do let performance choices dictate where our cutting goes a lot. So that's the way we've kind of developed our cutting styles, I guess, if you would, if you say, if you will. Kind of regardless of shot size. Yeah, probably if it really bumped us, we'd probably negate the shot size. But if it, if we thought we could get away with it, uh, and there was a subtle way into it, and we try not to cut too much, you know, we're always trying to resist cutting, overcutting. So if there's a way for us to sneak something in, a wider shot at a certain point, we'll go for it. Well, in that scene, for sure, there's a couple of lines with Mary and him. We went back to the wider, the medium wider shot while they're talking. And that was definitely because their performances as a team were so good. And sometimes when you see that repartee without cuts, it's way stronger than if you were cutting to each thing. Yeah, I think audiences are always appreciative of those places where they can tell that the performances between two people are... Are real and not manufactured. Agreed. Agreed. Yep. 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 There's a scene where they're in Boston and they go into a liquor store and they're having yeah. a discussion. Is yeah. that a oneer? Yeah. Was there coverage? Uh, no, no coverage. There were nine of those, I think. Nine? Yeah. Maybe eleven. Maybe twelve. 
So we had three heroes and it was always swapping out one for the other. Alexander tells a funny story about the guy that is the liquor store clerk. He winds up being great. And I saw that with an audience uh, when the, when we had the premiere and man, people laughed so hard. Here you go, killer. I, they just cracked up. It was a surprise how funny it was for everybody. A surprise to me. There's great moments of laughter and surprises like that. When you watched with audiences, did you make changes? So we only previewed it, I think, just one time. We had a lot of small screenings with friends and family and stuff like that, really, you know, like 10, 12, 15 people. We had a bunch of those. But we only had one major preview, and we were in good shape by the time we previewed it. It was pretty honed in. We basically walked away feeling very good about the cut. With movies that have a lot of humor in them, like this does, I would think that that would have the potential for needing to be changed once you see it with an audience. Yeah, jokes that fall flat or the timing seems off and stuff like that. Yeah, we always are adjusting that stuff. But, you know, that's always so subjective and so relative. You can go to one screening and a joke will land perfectly, and then you go screen the next week and... For some reason, nothing's changed and it doesn't get a laugh. It's the most bizarre thing. We learned a lot about that on election because we previewed that movie so much. And it was shocking how sometimes things got such huge laughs. There were some, a couple of solid laughs that we knew and they were consistent. But a lot of this other stuff, you'd be like, why didn't I get a laugh this time? We didn't touch it. Actually, it's a good thought not to change things based on yes. the screening. Yeah, it is. And then to trust yourselves, trust, trust yourself that you know what's what's working and not. As far as your other movies with Alexander, do you see themes or something that you then try to incorporate in the next movie or do you treat them all as completely different projects? I think they start out as completely different projects, but our approach of really fine-tuning performances, it's one of his strengths as a director, I think. He gets great performances from people. Our job in the cutting room is to trim them up and condense them because he he's really good and super good on the set with them, but he does give them a lot of time. So there's lots of times where things are just, you know, taking longer. He'll tell them to hurry up and, you know, pick it up. But, but because he's respectful of their process, sometimes we get, you know, the, the footage in the cutting room and, you know, the scenes are long. So we have to try to figure out how to cut a good performance. I think one of the big turning points in the film is when kind of most of the holdovers go away and you're left with the relationship with Angus. Was there a ticking clock for you as an editor and for Alexander as we got to get to that moment? Or was it a different moment that you were trying to get to? That was definitely a moment that is a big moment. And, you know, it, it comes late in the script. And that was a, even when we were, when this, when he was working on the script, I remember saying, isn't there a way we can get this? Can we condense this to make this happen while they're running track? Couldn't the helicopter land then? And I was suggesting all sorts of things because I thought that was pretty late. When you saw the first script, it was like 45 yeah. pages that went up to that point. Right. Right. So that's, that's deep into a movie to have that it is in our kind of traditional sort of standards of today. Yeah, 30 minutes. That was an th issue, and we couldn't condense it any more than we did without harming it. We talk about everything. Everything's on the table when we're in the cutting room. But I think any other cuts, like let's say you could cut out the scene where Angus talks to a young Korean boy, you know, because he wets his bed. I mean, that was an option. Like we were like, well, we could take that. But it was so good for Angus's character to keep that in there. 
It's a little save the cat moment. Yeah, it, it really saved his character because he, he, otherwise he was kind of a prickly kid. But it kind of warmed him up right there, that little scene. We could have done those kind of things, but it probably would have done more harm than good to take them out. How much do you and Alexander feel like that number stuff, that page count stuff is just crap? And if it's working, it's working. Well, he's better about that than I am. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to get it in at 30 minutes. Yeah, I'm like, wait, this movie should be 90 minutes long. And he's right. He's almost always right. He's like, no, the audience has to feel this. We, you know, we got to make sure that the, we, we don't. I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, I don't want to say that I really thought this movie should be 90 minutes, but, you know, he's right. You, you, especially his, this movie and his movies, uh, if you cut them too tight, then you're losing stuff. And he marches to his own drummer. He's just like, no, this will be the way it is. But of course, he, he cares deeply what the audience is thinking, too. So he's always, he wants to make it faster and, all that stuff. Yeah, I'm assuming you didn't push too hard on trying to get that earlier. But uh, well, I wouldn't say I pushed, but we discussed. You know, we talked about what if we did take this out, what would happen. But once it was in the script and shot, I was like, well, it's going to be hard. We'll do everything we can to make it happen, make things happen as quickly as they can. And we did. I think we took out. You know, we probably dropped a couple small scenes and dropped a couple tightened up in spots. I got to say, though, just to mention the script again, it's a really good script. And I think there's always something happening. You're an audience member, so you saw it fresh and clean. But I loved it. Okay, good. <laughs> there was always something happening. So it wasn't disinteresting. You kind of got into it. You're going along for the ride. And I think it's wonderful how certain things are revealed so slowly. You know, And there's a couple scenes in there that I was like, whoa, I don't know if it's going to work. Like They go to the Christmas party and basically... In a plot-driven movie, not much happens there, but it's all character stuff happening. And we spend, I don't know, what, 10 minutes more maybe at this Christmas party, but each character is getting this sort of moment. The Christmas party reminded me of something. One thing that I was wondering about, whether it was shot and whether it was cut out, was the thing about the snow globe. Oh, him taking the snow globe? Yeah, either taking it or giving it to his father. Oh, yeah. Nope, they didn't shot either, either of those things. You see that he focuses it on it. We kind of, you know, did the old take out the sound and let him trip out on it. Again, a good script thing. Also a script thing is that, you know, you find out Paul's backstory very slowly, but it's so good and it's heartbreaking when you hear his backstory. So you find out at the Christmas party that he ran away and started working at the school, or no, he was a student there. Then you find out his dad beat him, you know, later in the movie. So you're just like, whoa. I realized how slowly you learned about him, but I figured it was a script thing more than editing. Totally a script thing. And I just love how that's slow, slowly revealed. And it's good for the audience because they're finding out new things. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. Steve, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. And hopefully you and I will get a chance to chat again at the Ace Holiday Party. We'll see you there. Can't wait. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com slash blog slash AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Kevin Tent, ACE, for joining us on Art of the Cut. 
And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hullfish, ACE. Thank you for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.